The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today, locker room talk. At the second presidential debate, Donald Trump defended taped comments that he likes to quote, grab women by the pussy, end quote, as simply locker room talk instead of what it was, boasting about sexual assault. I have to say that it's pretty disgusting for him to call this quote-unquote locker room talk, given the fact that A, other than being at a golf course, I don't know the last time he's even been in a locker room, and B, he didn't say these words in a locker room. He wasn't in a locker room with Ben Roethlisberger, Tom Brady, and Rex Ryan having a schwitz. Oh, Rex Ryan, by the way, who said that he had still yet to hear the audio tape, clearly Rex Ryan not wanting to put a foot in his mouth. But take it back to Trump for a second. He didn't say it in a locker room. He said it on a bus. He said it on a bus where he was clearly wired for sound with cameras all around him. This is Donald Trump braying and boasting at age 59 years old about his ability to sexually assault women with impunity. And there is no getting around that. Immediately, social media was flooded with pro athletes, people who have spent a lot more time in locker rooms than Donald Trump, saying that this was a slander on their workplace. But the truth is more complicated. Yes, at least by my experience, as I'll discuss later, most locker rooms are not the locker rooms of Donald Trump's misogynistic fantasies. But we have also seen locker rooms at schools like Notre Dame, Penn State, Florida State, and Tennessee, to name just a few examples that have become incubators of rape culture and fortresses to protect predators. To break down that truth, I have a great guest in here this week. His name is DeAndre Levy from the Detroit Lions, who wrote the piece Man Up, a brilliant and brutal denunciation of locker room rape culture, who today is raising money to test the 11,000 rape kits found abandoned in a Detroit warehouse. As a young male, you're going to college, you're going through your adult years. That's a very important time. You're, very, you're free, you're away from your, your, your family, and that can be good or bad. Let's teach our young boys better instead of just teaching our women what not to do, which is asinine, I think. We have to teach our boys, we have to let them know that they're a part of the culture, but they don't have to be a part of that culture. And so now let's get to our first guest. He is a linebacker for the Detroit Lions. He played college football at Wisconsin, and he has been in the league since 2009. In April, he wrote an essay called Man Up, where he wrote the following. The dehumanization and objectification of women are not issues that are specific to male athletes. They are societal problems, but they tend to be more associated with athletes in part because we are often idolized because of our athletic ability. In many ways, we are considered models of masculinity, which is at the very root of a lot of these issues. I want to use my platform as an NFL player to discuss how we talk about rape and sexual assault, because not enough men are. And now here he is from the Detroit Lions, DeAndre Levy. DeAndre Levy, I I have to ask you before we start um, talking about any of the issues in which you're involved, what was your reaction when you heard that Donald Trump explained 
sexual assault and joking about sexual assault as being just quote unquote locker room talk. Yeah, I don't really um, buy that. I feel like when you say it's dismissive as locker room talk, the next step is dismissing the actual act of boys will be boys. I think it's, it's something that needs to be addressed. It's something that we don't really think of because it's so normalized. It's kind of the ideal that a lot of athletes have is that entitlement, and then you can do whatever you want when you're famous or whatever else you said. So you're saying that a lot of athletes have come forward to say, no, 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 not in my locker room. That That's not how people talk at all. But you're saying it's more complicated than that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, no one says grab him by the pussy or you can do whatever you want when you're famous. No one openly says that, but that doesn't take away from the way, you know, women are spoken of and referenced, not even in the locker room, but just in predominantly male circles. Mm-hmm. So I, when I when I look at the language, it's, it's very important to be conscious of how we're talking about women and, and what's going on. Mm. You know, you had this uh, great line in, in your Man Up piece where you wrote, it's important for men, especially in a hyper-masculine culture that breeds so many assholes, to stand up and challenge the values that have been passed down to us. This is not just a women's problem, end quote. I I love that line so much because it's a great example, DeAndre, of not being a bystander, not being passive. So that leads me to ask you, how would you handle it? If hypothetically you had a teammate next to you in a very sort of laughing about it matter, ha ha ha, joking about a sexual assault, and they weren't even talking to you, but say they were right next to you, how would you handle that? I think first you have to let them know what they're doing is a sexual assault and show them why it is a sexual assault and why what they're doing is not acceptable and it's not an act to be glorified or or something to brag about. It's not a good thing of, you know, just this is what we do. It's our culture. That's not acceptable. So I think that's first. And secondly, you have to find a way to find out if this person is doing this or not, because if they are, then it's not necessarily a one-time scenario, not all the time. So you have to see if there's something really going on and, and try to take it to someone who can look into it and find answers for you. There was actually a time in college, you know, I look back, that's one of the things that really kind of sparked kind of this speaking out against the culture is looking back. When you were at Wisconsin? Yeah, yeah. When I was uh, at school, there was a lot of things going on that I never thought to question, that I never thought to see as a problem because it was so so normalized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were two specific instances where, you know, I would hear guys talking about things that happened, <laughs> laughing and joking about things that happened. Even, you know, sharing photos, it was, it was, it was something... That at the time, as an 18-year-old, I never thought to question it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I look back to that time now to see, like, knowing what I know now, what could I do to change that situation? And I think it's a, it's a, it's a tough answer, man, because being 18 and seeing this, you don't even see it as a problem. You don't think to question it. It's just something that was just a part of kind of locker room culture, if you want to, you know, go back to locker room talk. It's part of locker room culture, just, you know, sharing wild stories and things that happen. But there are two times where... You know, I try to put myself in my shoes then and see, you know, what, what would I have to to do to make sure that something doesn't continue to happen and that, you know, we can bring people in and try to uh, eliminate the problem and bring justice for the girl if she did or did not report. You know, I don't want to, I don't know exactly all the details, but from what I remember, it very, very much sounded like something that was undoubtedly a sexual assault. 
Was it the sort of thing, though, that when you saw it at the time, you weren't sure if it was a sexual assault? And then after the fact or with more consciousness, you were like, wait a minute, what? that was an assault. That was not just fun pictures on a phone or a violation of someone's privacy. That was an assault. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Back then, 18, I was unable to identify it. I didn't think anything of it. You know, I knew in my mind, like, this is kind of weird. Like, why would guys want to, you know, do this? But at the time, it was just. It was prevalent enough to the point where I was unaware. Like, I had no idea how to identify and the complexities that go into sexual assault or, you know, any type of violence towards women, especially in college. And I think that that's one of the things that really kind of sits with me, you know, from a guilt standpoint. And my lack of understanding, lack of education as a young person, as a young male, my first exposure to, you know, this culture shouldn't be in college because there's so much bad stuff happening. As as a young male, you're going to college, you're going to your adult years, and that's a very important time. You're very, you're free. You're away from your your, your family. You uh, have a lot of freedom, and that can go be good or bad. So we need to prepare our, our boys better so that we can go into these situations and know what's what and what's not, and we can stop things from happening. I think that's a very very important part of why I'm you know writing and speaking out is to educate. Let's bring awareness to this. Let's teach our young boys better instead of just teaching our women what not to do, which is asinine i think we we have to teach our boys we have to let them know that they're a part of the culture but they don't have to be a part of that culture you know Mm. it's far too prevalent and we have to educate our boys like i said to be able to identify it and not just think it's just okay and and that's the kind of what our culture is telling us is that it's okay it's okay it's okay to talk like this it's okay to act like this we don't punish it it's completely backwards my son is eight years old and I've started talking to him about just what consent means. And I can say that I never even heard the word consent until I was maybe 18 or 19 years old. Yeah, absolutely. My, I didn't really hear it until, you know, maybe my senior year of college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and there's a, there's a lot of things happening that doesn't necessarily have to happen. It's it's one thing that bring people in and talk about it or see a commercial or, you know, see things on the internet. But it's very, very different, I think, to see men on this side of it calling it out because we have so many men that hold it up and support it, like Donald Trump. Yeah. You know, I I keep thinking about – because I was born and raised a New York Knicks fan. I keep thinking about Derrick Rose, and I don't know – I'm not commenting on his guilt or innocence and the certain civil trial right now about rape. But there's there's all kinds of ways in which he's talking about it that's deeply problematic and so a lot of ugliness surrounding that case. How would you handle it if your team, because we've seen this in the NFL, if they sign someone who had a documented history of violence against women? I know that you know the careers are short in the NFL. I know contracts aren't necessarily all guaranteed, and I know that puts you all in a, in a precarious position. Yeah. And I know there's all that rhetoric about team is family and that thin blue line or whatever you want to call it in the locker room. But but what do you do if it's someone like yourself who this is such a passion for you, and your team signs someone who you now have to share this space with who is known to have engaged in sexual assault? It can be tough. You know, you, you don't want to jeopardize your, your job or your place with the team. But for me personally, I would have to, one, question the people who signed them, you know, whether it was manage, you know, the management head coach. Mm-hmm. And I would have to bring attention to it on a, on a broader scale. I would talk to the guy, try to get his side of the story. Obviously, you want to make a fair judgment. I would try to talk to him and sit down because I think right now, 
we don't really have a a way to solve it. I don't think suspending the person is necessarily a way to solve it or, you know, just labeling them an offender or whatever. It's like, we have to sit down and fix these problems with these people. We prioritize a person's ability to play football and sport over their humanity. Like, he can help mm-hmm. us win, but he's a shitty person. So we're kind of like keeping a shitty person within the culture, you know? Particularly yeah. if, he, if he has sexual assault on it. We're telling him it's okay. We'll still sign. We'll pay you. Again, I got to quote you to you in your essay, Man Up. One of the things you did that I thought was very brave is that you blew the whistle or opened the door a little bit on what it looks like when the NFL does one of their here's a film about sexual assault and and how people respond to it and just like the words that people say. And this is what you wrote. Um, about the reaction of, of other players. You wrote victim blaming, check, slut shaming, yup, lack of understanding of what constitutes rape, absolutely. Quiet snickering at the idea that a man can also be a victim, of course. And then you wrote, this isn't about the NFL, it's much bigger than that, but I'm asking my fellow athletes to take this opportunity to step up. I First, I got to ask you, what was the league reaction to your essay? Um, the couple people I spoke with, it was positive. I, I didn't speak to a lot of people from the actual league, but there were a couple um, guys that worked out, reached out to me, and they were kind of working in the same vein of domestic violence and sexual assault. And, mm-hmm. and they may have been a group that actually, you know, mandates these presentations. But it was it was all very positive. And, you know, I have to say, though, the fact that you didn't get more blowback or backlash from that is also, in a weird way, kind of a problem because it makes me think that people were just saying, like, yeah, sexual assault against a man is it, – it, I'm I'm laughing at that. So what? You know, it's like, right. yeah, I'm laughing, slut-shaming. What is that be bullshit? You know, it's it's almost like – it's like you're writing this down and for some of us who read it, it's very – it's a damning indictment of locker room culture with regards to sexual assault. But if it doesn't offend anybody, then it's almost like they're not remorseful at all about the behavior or embarrassed. Yeah, I think the NFL, a lot of times that's just so they can say they did their part. It has to, it has to go further than that. You can't just show a person a video and expect to change essentially an entire culture. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 it woke me up more so the responses that the presentation received kind of woke me up like, whoa, these are things that I thought and believed when I was a teenager trying to figure, you know, things out. And we have, you know, you're in your mid late twenties and you still have these beliefs like, well, where, where does it stop? Where do we? Where do we start educating? Where do we change it? I think it's so deeply ingrained that uh, we don't even see it as an issue. And I think that it definitely extends to NFL and the leadership and anybody that, you know, it is a part of um, the NFL that could actually, you know, make something happen. I don't know what the answer would be, but it, it definitely has to be pushed further. Now, now I know one thing statistically that I saw over the weekend is that, um, since the videotape of Ray Rice uh, striking his then fiance Janae, uh, now his wife, since then, arrests on issues of domestic violence and violence against women, which is, a- as you wrote, is effectively just the conjoined twin of rape and sexual assault because they're all about the devaluation of women and their bodies. Arrests are way down since the tape. Is that something that you sense, like any change of locker room culture or anything post Ray Rice? I mean, do you think players are more wary? 
I mean, what, what, how do you explain that? Like, are, are there positive changes afoot, I guess is what I'm asking, or is it more just Ray Rice as cautionary tale? I think it's more Ray Rice as a cautionary tale, but, but I, I don't know if that will change the people who are or wouldn't do it anyway. It's more of like a warning, like, don't be like Ray Rice. You'll lose your job. You'll lose this. You'll lose that. And that could even, I think, on another end, could possibly could silence a woman further if something is going on. It's like, well, he'll lose his entire career. We'll lose our financial situation. He'll be at home more. You know, there can be better negative effects from that. And I think that's part of the reason why the culture doesn't really change because it's all just putting Band-Aids on things. Mm. It's like, what happened if the Ray Rice video didn't ever come out? You know, it's, it's like a video of a woman getting punched unconscious had to go viral for the NFL to act on it mm. and to realize that this is bad. This is not something men should do. So if that's the only reason why they're responding and, you know, this is not harsh punishments, then I don't, I don't know if it'll ever fully change. Mm. You know, I, I, I got I to gotta go back to you and ask you this because you're so clearly passionate about this, DeAndre. It, it, it clearly hits you in a place that's way beyond, oh, this is my choice of philanthropy or this is my the good deed I'll do as, a, as an athlete. Like, was it really just the fact that you were at Wisconsin and started thinking about this stuff? Or is there – are there any more personal reasons why this, this just sticks with you so hard? Yes. Um, it's not just what I witnessed and saw and heard in college. It's it's also, you know, affected people that have been close to me and that I do know of, you know, throughout my life, there's been numerous people that have secretly suffered and you don't even know, you don't even realize it. And I think, you know, once you see how prevalent of a problem it is and how we respond to it and how we treat survivors and people who are assaulted, it's sickening. It's it's kind of sad that you have to, you know, answer why do you want to stand against sexual assault and domestic violence, you know? It's it's the, the prevalency of it is is kind of scary. And being a man on this side of it, we have to change the culture from the inside. We have to like it, it's not good enough anymore to still, you know, like I said, you know, a lot of guys had those same beliefs and thoughts that I had when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14 in my teens. That's that's not good enough anymore. Mm. You got in contact with me during Domestic Violence Awareness Month in the spring, and you said, let's do something in October during Breast Cancer Awareness Month when players are just pinked out all over the league. And I wanted to ask you that, like, why do you think it's so important to center this discussion of domestic violence and sexual assault right when the NFL is doing this sort of very friendly for the cameras, everybody wear pink, we love our female fans kind of a moment? Yeah, I think um, that's kind of the extent of the relationship with female fans from the NFL is we can sell them a bunch of pink gear in October and everything's all right. But it has to challenge the NFL and its own stances, values, because, um, you know, we, we look at kids, you know, teenagers playing football and they all have pink gloves. They all have pink wristbands, pink socks, pink cleats, and no doubt that Breast cancer is something that's very important. We have to, you know, it affects many women as well. I don't want to compete with issues by any means. But these kids, they do it because they see us. They see us. Imagine if, you know, we had guys wearing all purple. They're going to ask, you know, why is this guy wearing purple? Why is this guy wearing teal? Mm. And it kind of keeps that conversation there. It kind of puts it in the kids' heads because they do things that they see us do. 
you know, five years ago, ten years ago, whenever they started the campaign, you never seen kids walking around playing in pink cleats or pink gloves. So I think it could be a very, very powerful image to see, you know, these kids with, you know, with the purple on and they see and they ask us why. So they, you know, they ask why they have it on and we say domestic violence and sexual assault. If, you know, they wore teal for like April or whatever, but I, I think that gives open up the door for us to educate them and let them know that a lot of things that they hear, see, and things that won't be challenged, that they can challenge and change it because, it's, you know, it's, it's wrong things to do. Once they, they're educated and they can understand what it is, it gives them an opportunity to stop it. It gives them an opportunity to identify it. It kind of debunks a lot of myths that we may hear regarding it. And for our, for our young males to start asking those questions, I think that will be, you know, have a, a tremendous effect in being able to stop it. Mm. Very well put. Now, you, you're partnering right now with the Detroit Hustles Harder clothing line to sell yeah. T-shirts that say simply, Our Issue. Can you explain what that means, Our Issue, and where the proceeds for these T-shirts are going? Yeah, we're um, selling T-shirts with Our Issue on it, and it's kind of just to open the conversation. You know, people see, well, what's Our Issue? Well, let's talk about domestic violence and not dismiss it as a woman's issue, but it's our issue, specifically as men and, and, and broadly as a society. Yeah, all the money right now is going to uh, enough set to fund and process rape kits because Detroit had a backlog, I think, of 11,000 or something. Yeah, rape that's kits. what I had. They found yeah. 11,000 rape kits in a warehouse in 2009. Yeah. Absolutely. So I've joined the efforts of other Detroit-based groups like um, African-American 490 Challenge. They raised over like 80000 last year, and I want to kind of use this to give space for victims and survivors that's been left voiceless. So right now we're raising up $19,000. Um, we are trying to get to 50000 but that's not solely merchandise. So we have merchandise, and we're also doing other fundraising things. And it's also through Enough Said, which is like – that's actually why Enough Said started. They were formed to raise money for the test of, of the kits, and now you know we're in the phase of investigating and prosecuting some of the crimes and uh right now i think so far since they've gotten to the phase of um investigating and prosecutions there's been 54 convictions so far it helps solve i think cases in, in like 40 other states there's 260 cases in active investigation right now mm. now that that that's so important and i imagine that has extra impact because it's detroit where I know people in the Motor City can feel often like their needs have been basically abandoned by so much of the country. And I'm yeah. do, do you sense that, like this level of appreciation for what you do because it is Detroit and people need those kinds of, of heroes to step up on these issues? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly in Detroit, um, like many cities, and with, you know, with problems like Detroit has faced, it, it's often a large crowd and a large population that's kind of left left behind and I don't think any person should be left behind solely because the problems of the, of the city mm. it's already tough enough for people to report you know it's underreported it's for for many reasons and when they have the courage to go and report and try to have justice sought it should be received you know we have to do everything we can do to make sure that we're reinforcing and reaffirming that we care about this issue we we will do something about the issue and you know it's it's so important. I'm so glad that you said that uh, that that last part because 
I mean, if people read like the book Missoula by John Krakauer, like one of the things he goes through is like just coming forward, just going through the, the experience of a rape kit can be so incredibly traumatizing. And when people know of that trauma in advance, it can be such an incentive to just not speak and yeah. be and, and stay yeah. quiet even but then you suffer for that terribly and then to ha- go through the rape kit and then to have it be one of 11,000 in a warehouse i mean it's staggering it is it is uh we're, we're trying to change that though we're trying yeah. to do our part so i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you two last quick hit questions apart from this um just as we were talking right now hot news off the wire uh, Chip Kelly has announced that Colin Kaepernick will be starting next week for the 49ers. And yeah. I wanted to ask you your feelings about Colin Kaepernick's protest. Do you think it's mm-hmm. a positive way to address issues of racism and police violence? And what are the implications of him starting in terms of the profiles that he's created around this issue? Yeah, I think what he's doing is great. I think it's phenomenal. Um the response that he's kind of receiving kind of further proves the point, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what better way to put this issue on the table for us to talk about and discuss than, you know, on the biggest platform we really have in sports in our country. And the response has been a little bit disappointing because I think people are missing the point and it's creating all these other different backlashes and, you know, different conversations that people want to open it to. But the point is that justice isn't being served equally in this country. And that's a problem. And that's for some reason makes people really angry. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think the implications of him being a starter, I think, I think it's great. That's, that's, I'm kind of surprised by it. I don't think they would stand by him the way they did, but the organization handled it really well. They supported him from day one. And I think they would match some donations to a few organizations. And th- I think that's really cool when you can get the organization on board with an athlete, with one of your players in the social matter, mm-hmm. in a societal issue. And I think that's really great. I think that's something that the NFL could do a lot better at is supporting the players when they are standing for something good. And I think that's really great. I know people don't want to get into politics because it's bad for business, but I think it was phenomenal. And it is interesting because I predicted that the team would stand behind him and people thought I was crazy, but I knew Chip Kelly when he was at Oregon, when I was doing a book tour with John Carlos from the 68 Olympics and Chip Kelly went out of his way when he heard we were on campus to bring John Carlos in to speak to his players about social justice and the importance of standing for something. Wow. And when yeah, I heard I, that, I yeah, yeah, yeah. When I heard that and then there were the rumors about, oh, he doesn't like black players in Philadelphia. I, I heard that. I, I, I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, I have this personal experience with this guy where he is bringing one of the great athletic rebels of the last 50 years to say to – Young kids, be like this guy. Stand for something. I mean that that said something to me about his character and his heart, and I think he's proven that with Kaepernick. No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, that, I, I remember that. I was I was questioning too. I don't think Chip Kelly would be on board for it at all, just from you know what you hear rumors in the players' locker room or whatever. But that's really good that he does that. I, I didn't know Chip Kelly went back like that. That's 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 good. It is good, and I'm and I know it matters to Colin Kaepernick that players like yourself have his back. 
And now my last yeah. question I got to ask you, because when I saw you went to Wisconsin, I, I was thinking about somebody I've interviewed before, and that's Chris Borland, uh, who walked oh, away Borland, from the yeah. game. He looked right at the camera, and he said that he was doing this because uh, the way the NFL lies about head injuries, CTE, and he does not want to be a party to it because the NFL is just an unreliable broker when it comes to his personal health. So I guess my question is, what is up with Wisconsin that it's produced DeAndre Levy and Chris Borland? Is something in the water? Is there like a professor that everybody loves? I mean, what's the deal? <laughs> I don't know, man. I got to go back and cross-reference with Borland, man. We've actually spoke a few times, and uh, he, he, he seems like a really good dude from everything I heard and a couple of times I've talked to him. There's, uh, we, we bring in some, we're producing some good people for the uh, sports world, I think. Oh, absolutely. And there was a, a basketball player at Wisconsin, Alondo Tucker, who is strongly like against the death penalty? Um, yeah, yeah. He's a basketball player. I just saw something about him, uh, Nigel or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Article about him on like the undefeated, where he's kind of he's, he's another one that that uh, we need more and more athlete figures like that. I think our sports figures suck, man. In the NFL. Nigel Hayes, who I believe has an yeah, Malcolm yeah, X tattoo, Hayes. and yeah, and yep, that, yeah. talking about what he's doing. All right, so so I think what we have to do is have a Wisconsin summit of socially conscious athletes. <laughs> have like a roundtable, man. We Hell yeah! Some, some great things that come up from that. And in Madison too, I mean, the crowd. As long as we could keep everybody sober beforehand, the crowd would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, just have it kind of early. People won't be up by then. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Hey. DeAndre Levy, I really do want to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your work. And if there's anything we could ever do to aid anything that you are about, please don't hesitate to let us know. Cool. Will do. Thank you. You feel good about how the Lions are doing this year? Yeah, man. I, we, we had like a little three-game slump, but um, last week, Sunday, we played really well. I think if we can keep that up and kind of have the offense and the defense playing in sync with one another, we'll, we'll be good. Awesome. That's the only football talk I'm going to make you do. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm good, man. We can talk about whatever. <laughs> But, yo, thank you so much for the time. No, thank you. Be well. Thank you so much to DeAndre Levy. If people want more information about Detroit Hustles Harder, the Hour Issue t-shirts, or the Enough Said program, there will be links in the description of this podcast at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. And hey, for all active athletes out there, if you want to talk in a space where we will suss through the political issues of what matters to you, come on the podcast. The door is always open. And now I've got my own choice words about everything we've been talking about. This is called Not In My Locker Room. If people want to follow along with this column, you can do it in the description of this podcast. We have a link, although be forewarned, I am known to go on tangents when I read my own work. So look, I, like DeAndre Levy, have spent my share of time in locker rooms. And while I understand the desire to brand Donald Trump as a uniquely misogynistic liar, I cannot say that his comments are alien to a locker room. 
If only the sole alleged rapist to emerge from a locker room in this country was Donald Trump, the world would be a much better and safer place. But that's just not the truth. As Samuel L. Jackson said in Pulp Fiction, But that shit ain't the truth. People can read Jessica Luther's book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, and get a crash course about how the locker room can be an incubator of rape and a fortress against anyone who would challenge this culture. I also, however, have no doubt that the athletes who are coming forward to say that they've never heard rape talk in the locker room are telling their truth. Again, I've been in many locker rooms, and it is absolutely true that there is no steady stream of banter, liberated to talk freely without the tender ears of lady folk around, blabbing about how they just love to assault women. I personally have only heard it twice out of hundreds of locker room interactions as an athlete or a reporter, but both times the words and deeds were anything but benign. first time was in high school. There was an upperclassman, let's call him Brett, and he was next to me bragging to a friend about how he, if at the right party and in the right scenario, quote, could grab any tits without even talking and make any woman have sex with him. He then told a story in gross detail about the previous Saturday night when, quote, my hands were all over her body and it was over. And he topped it all off by quoting a rap song, and I still remember what song. It was by a group called Nice and Smooth of All People, where Greg Nice says, Sex, sex, sex is the lega lega law when a guy gets a girl behind the bedroom door. Look, I was a teenage silent bystander to all of this. I stood there three inches away from this discussion, and I said absolutely nothing. I'd like to say I was concerned that I'd be beat up or pushed into a locker or that I was worried about getting suspended if I got in a big fight or something, but that that would be bullshit. The truth was, I thought I'd look like a loser if I said anything. I was Billy Bush. I didn't know what rape culture or being a passive bystander meant. I knew I left the locker room, though, feeling like shit, embarrassed to face my big sister that evening. And yes, I know, I'm also sick of politicians who are saying that they're upset with Donald Trump's words because they have a sister or a mother, as if you can't just be upset about it because you're a human being, and he's talking about assaulting other human beings. But again, I'm just being honest. I was a teenage kid who looked up to my big sister, and the thought of facing her, having not said a word, was, was, was kind of harrowing. Now, that same student, Brett, was accused of rape as a senior. His parents had some sway, And the choice was to kick him out of school quietly and not involve the police. But that's not where the story ends. A couple years later, I was at a friend's house who went to high school with Brett, the new high school. And he had his senior yearbook. And I was thumbing through it, not even thinking about Brett. And I came across his senior page where you have your your picture and you get to have some sort of famous quote. And he actually chose a quote that was more rap lyrics about rape. It was all a big joke to him. And it's at this point where I should feel obliged to say that this person was white, wealthy, and entitled. And he loved rape lyrics in rap songs because they made him feel empowered. Empowered enough to brag about sexual assault in the locker room and bold enough to make people like myself feel quiet. The second time was also in high school. 
I had a very peaceful, hippie, vegetarian basketball coach, great guy named Coach Dan. And once he came into the locker room and told us to get our clothes on because one of the girls' team coaches, Coach Deb, was about to come in and say a few words. Now, Coach Deb was somebody who'd been coaching for decades. Uh, She was tough as hell. But, you know, of course, she was the girls' coach. So we all groaned and reached for our pants, except for one teammate I'll call Tim. Tim saw this as a moment for humor, and he said, let's keep our pants off because then we can rape her. I wish I could tell you whether laughter followed, but we didn't even get the chance to react because Coach Dan backhanded Tim across the face, making the loud kind of smack, which just shocks a whole room. Seeing a coach or adult authority figure hit a teenager, even a huge one like Tim, was shocking enough. Seeing hippie Dan do it was unreal. We all stood there either stunned or shaking. Coach Dan finally spoke and broke the silence and said, I'm sorry, but there's some things you don't joke about. He then walked out of the locker room and practice was done. The incident was never mentioned. But Dan lost his joy for the job. Tim became sullen in practice. And that was the first and last locker room rape joke of the season. I'm not writing about that last interaction positively. To be perfectly clear, using violence to teach a teenage kid that rape is wrong seems like you're then caught in the same cycle of toxic masculinity that produces rape and rape culture in the first place. But even though I disagree with what Coach Dan did, he wasn't a passive bystander. And I never heard about Tim being accused of assault. One wonders if someone had intervened with Brett if a woman or women could have been spared his predations. One wonders if someone had smacked a teenage Donald Trump, if women could have been spared the decades of degradation he has so willingly projected both in his public and personal life. It is because of people like Donald Trump that a locker room can become an incubator of rape culture and a fortress against anyone who would challenge it from the outside. Inside the locker room, All athletes need to pledge that this will not fly. No one, well, maybe almost no one, needs to be smacked. But the predators need to be confronted and removed. Don't be a rape culture bystander. Just be clear that, quote-unquote, pulling a Trump will not be tolerated. And say loudly and proudly, not in my locker room. Just Stand Up Award this week goes to one of my boyhood heroes, former New York Mets pitcher Ron Darling. Ron Darling is now an announcer for the New York Mets. And this is what he said in reaction to Donald Trump's statement that talking about sexual assault is just, quote unquote, locker room talk. This is what he said. He said, every repugnant thing that you can think of has probably been said in a clubhouse at some point. It's not only clubhouses. I'm sure that it happens at the elite country clubs and in boardrooms. That's probably why you don't have as many women who should be in positions of power right now. So it's pervasive. It's always ugly. It always makes no sense to me. And now with social media, it's like we've become a world where it's the rage of the inarticulate. 
That's the world we live in. That's Ron Darling. Not bad for a Yale graduate. Normally, I don't expect uh, people from Yale to have that point of view since they want to protect the power and privilege that they have in these boardrooms around the country. But Ron Darling has always pitched to the beat of his own drummer. So the Just Stand Up work goes to Ron Darling, especially because he's saying this in a space, Major League Baseball, that is always by far the quietest space when it comes to issues such as these. The Edge of Sports hotline is 401-426-3343. Is that what it is? Hey, Dave. My name is Peter Beckway. I'm a uh, high school English teacher teaching at an international school in Seoul, South Korea. And I wanted to let you know that I have used your podcast and some of your writing in the classroom recently. We were talking about the letter from a Birmingham jail essay by Martin Luther King Jr. and white moderates. And lo and behold... I heard your podcast and saw your article in The Nation about talking about the white moderates that are trying to denounce or limit Kaepernick's protest. We had a fruitful discussion in the classroom, and I want to thank you for your excellent podcast. The question of the week is quite simple. Is what Donald Trump said his bragging about sexually assaulting women. Is that something you have heard in locker rooms? And if you did hear it in a locker room, what did you or anyone else do about it? We want to hear those stories. Call us, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. Call us up and tell us if this is just locker room talk as you know it. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much to DeAndre Levy for joining us. Thank you so much to my producer, Dan Bloom. Thank you so much to our associate producer, David Tigaboo. If you want to listen to back episodes of the show, you can always go to www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. I also want to say, if you like the show, rate it, please, at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Leave a good comment. All of that stuff matters in the podcast world. And I think we're putting out a pretty remarkable show. And I want more people to know about it. Straight up. Big thank you to Lauren Ober and the folks at The Big Listen for including an interview with me about how this podcast came about. We'll have a link to that episode in the description of this podcast if you want to hear Lauren Ober and her terrific questions to me. Again, thank you, Lauren Ober. Uh, if you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, you always can at Edge of Sports on Twitter or at Edge of Sports at Slate.com. Thank you again. We are out of here. Peace.